Well, Judges is the 12th, uh, not the 12th, the 7th book of the Bible. We are, uh, there are 12 judges in the story. We're at number 12. It's Samson. And um, I'm so thankful for everyone sharing some of the things they're learning this morning throughout Samson. And just so if you're visiting with us, uh, the book of Judges uh, is is about God's people. They've gone into this land that God has promised them. And before they went into the land, God asked them to do a couple of things. He told them to destroy the people that were there and not and tear down all the idols. Now that seems harsh, but we, you can go back if you need to understand that. We've talked about that and why God did that, but we can't address that today. Uh, his people didn't listen to him. They didn't do anything. They, didn't, they, they partially did some of what he asked them to do. And they find themselves in this cycle that the, uh, our people shared this morning where they sort of spiral, they turn away from God, they find them, God disciplines them and brings some other people groups to sort of oppress them. They, they then cry out to God, but it's not really, they just want relief. They're not really repenting and turning to God for hope. Uh, God brings a judge, a savior, and the word judge means um, I think more of a chief or a mighty warrior, a military person. And he brings them to them, and they, um, and they have a, a little bit of prosperity, and they always find themselves back in the cycle. And I really appreciate what Crystalyn said. It is a spiraling cycle in this sense that they keep getting worse and worse. The judges get worse and worse. If you were here, I know many of you may have heard of Samson and thought, oh, he's a nice guy, be like Samson. We looked at it last week. He's not. And even this scene is a very bad scene that we find him in, a very erotic scene that he's in with a woman. He's not a good guy. And, um, and we mostly think be strong like Samson. So the judges have gotten worse. And um, it is a story of a spiral of God's people, and they keep getting worse. Uh, what is also true that we're learning is this also a, a, a God's redemption is, is right there with them and bringing them out of it. And we also see a pattern of God to keep redeeming people who don't deserve it, which is us. We don't deserve it, and he keeps rescuing and pursuing and being faithful no matter how far gone we find ourselves. So Judges is a very relevant book. I hope you've seen that. It seemed uh, most of the people I talked to weren't like they were glad to study. They're like, ooh, this is weird. Why are we doing this one? <laughs> but uh, it was, um, it's very relevant for today. I hope you felt that. So. We find ourselves with Samson in the second part of his life, the very last part of his life here and his death. And maybe uh, the best way to describe the end of his life is irony. Okay, so we'll just think about the idea of irony. And irony is a literary term that, uh, this is what irony is. Irony is an event, in a literary term that means when an event that is deliberately contrary to uh, an event that winds up <laughs> deliberately contrary uh, to what you might expect, that it finishes opposite of what, you, what it seemed like the logical thing would be or what you might expect. So in a funny sense, like irony is when if a traffic cop uh, goes to jail for not paying his parking tickets, that's irony. Um, uh, if there's an armed robber who uh, w went into Speedway and robs a convenience store and our police chase him and he runs and hides in the chase and hides inside the police department behind a vending machine <laughs> that's convenient. That's irony. It finishes different and funny than what you might expect. There's some great irony in history. It's interesting if you look about irony in our history, a couple of odd ones. Um, kudzu, you know kudzu that you see all over that plant that on the interstates and whatever. When it was introduced... Uh, to the U.S. in the 1930s, it was, we were told it was intended to prevent soil erosion, and the government encouraged farmers to plant it. 
If you know anything about kudzu, uh, instead, the performing, <laughs> instead of performance intended job of preservation of nature, kudzu chokes out trees, plants, and it grows as it climbs and even messes up foundations of places. So that's ironic, right? Uh, what was intended was opposite. It's actually true, I didn't know this, that when JFK was assassin- assassinated in Dallas, some of you may mo- know this, that the governor's wife, before he got in the, uh, uh, on the, the parade and what went through on his drive, said with all the people there, uh, her last words to him was, it's just clear that Dallas loves you. And he responded, obviously they do. It's a sad irony in many ways. So that's what it is. And irony is, uh, this story of, of uh, Samson has a lot of irony in how it sort of finishes. It's not what you expect. And so here's just a key thought about the Christian life in general. And I just want you to hear, hear this uh, today. Uh, but I think, first, let me give you the key verse. There's a key verse, and it's in verse 22. There's a lot of key verses, but this is the one I'm picking is the key verse. Um, after he goes to prison and is conquered, um, captured, the scriptures tell us, but the hair of the head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And I, what I want you to see there, I think that's a pivotal point. Um, sin had sort of been the primary way he had lived. And God begins to change him right there. There's a turn in his life. It's a hard turn, and it's only he doesn't have long to live it out. But we would call Christianity maybe repentance, that God granted him a turning away from his patterns and turning to God. And so it's interesting, the hair, the, the power wasn't in the hair. The power was in God. So it's letting us know, I think, that God began to change this man in verse 22. And it's some irony. So let me, uh, let me quickly pray and we'll finish. Lord, um, would, you, um, would you help us as we come to this place uh, and see this story? Would you help us apply it to our own lives? And would you exalt Christ and convict us as well and Lord, while we see the patterns of sin, may we also see the patterns of your faithfulness. And uh, be with us in these few moments together in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So here was the key thought I want us to have as we go into the passage a little more. Sin ironically promises you, uh, sin promises you life and ironically gives you death. While repentance, which would be turning to God, which by the way we believe is a gift, you can't make yourself do that. So God sort of starts working on you. Uh, that while repentance feels like death, but ironically brings life, brings a different thing. So I hope we can just see that. If you can walk away with that this morning, sin in the world, the way the world opposite of God, out from under God, uh, seems to offer life, but ironically brings death. And um, repentance feels like death, but ironically it brings life. So... Um, there's a, first, we'll just, so we'll, two things. We'll look at the irony of the sin and then the irony of, um, and then the irony of repentance and what it brings. And so one key verse that came to mind all week when I was thinking about, about, um, about Samson and his story here, um, that, uh, there is a, a Proverbs 14, 12, a proverb that's a beautiful, I've known a long time, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads to death. So it seems right. 
But, the, but it's ironic how it ends. It leads to death. It fills that. That's, a, that's sort of the nature of when we go out from under God's rule, his love, and we live independently from him and build a kingdom of self, that sin in and of its very nature in our lives, anything contrary to God, it seems right, the proverb says, but it feels right, but it leads to death. And so maybe that's the way to think about it. And I want to focus uh, particularly on Delilah here. Now, last week we went through, I mean, all kinds of his debacles of his life, right? I mean, he's a buffoon. And so we find himself here, and then he finds Delilah. And, uh, but, but what I want to see is I, I do feel like the Scriptures wanted us to see this, this relationship with Delilah, sort of around the marriage and, and sexual relations here in this particular verse, that's what the Bible wants us to see. It's the story of the finish, that he's lived selfishly, but it's around this particular thing that we get the majority of the story at the end of his life. And so um, that's where we are. Now, it is ironic, right? I mean, remember that uh, the, the gods of the Canaanites were Asherol and uh, Baal, and they were prosperity, which he wanted to be king, and he had power, and Samson used his power to get whatever he wanted. Those are the last week's verses. And yet, uh, at the same time, Asherol was a sexual god, and he, in the end, he had bowed down to that. They had blended their view of that, and in the end, intimacy, sexual intimacy, or their lack thereof is what destroys it. And so God is showing us that these gods don't win. At the end, there's a great fight, right, where it's Dagon, the God, it looks like he's winning, but our God wins. But the Lord is showing us that the way of the gods, really of ourselves, and any other gods don't work. So where did, uh, where did his sin take him? Where did, where, did, where did the bowing down this way that seemed right, where did it take Samson? I want you to see this, just learning from him in his life. He found himself alone which he was alone throughout the whole story we looked at last week. We found himself in prison, enslaved, probably moving a mill in a circle and just moving a stone around to run the mill. He's enslaved. He's without his eyes. He's gouged out. He's tortured. Um, he's mocked. And also... Um, an even worse verse in verse 20, which maybe was the saddest verse in the whole thing, where Delilah wakes him up and it says, Samson woke up from his sleep and I will go out and I'll do just like I always have. And he said, but he did not know the Lord had left him. He really had no clue what it meant to be connected to God, to walk with him. So not only is he find himself at a low point physically, and that he's also just disconnected from God, which is the worst thing that can happen to anyone. So he finds himself there. So what seemed right to Samson in his own eyes? Just a couple of thoughts. What seemed right to him? What must have seemed right to him in his patterns, particularly in this dealing with, with uh, Delilah? Delilah is a reflection of what he's been doing in all the other three chapters we've seen. It's sort of, we see it applied here. We even see it in this specific relationship. But here's the first thing. It probably seemed right to him based upon the way he functioned his whole life was that God's laws are restrictive and they keep me from having any joy. And any freedom, they're, they're just restrictive. And from the very beginning, you remember last week when he had this Nazarite vow that God gave to him, to, uh, to his mom to be a part of. And that God's, from the very beginning, the first thing we learn is that he's violating those. And he violates all the vows that he had that was given to him. And he seems to think that God's, it seems to read that and show that any, God's laws restrict us and hold us back. They would not be for my good. Anything that God might would ask me to do would be for my, against me, and they're restrictive and holding me back. And he is living for his own 
own uh, freedom. As a matter of fact, the verses we didn't read in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says that before he gets to the city where Delilah is, he goes to Gaza, which is symbolic that Gaza was way far away from where he grew up. So he's going all the way with this thing to a place deep into the, the, the land of Gaza and the Canaanites. And he saw a prostitute and he went into her. So right before he meets Delilah, he's been with prostitutes. And most think in that passage before this, it's just giving us a window for the 20 years he's been sort of ruling. He's just doing unrestricted whatever he wants to do. And people are going everywhere to try to find him, the Philistines, to try to kill him because he's just a man on the loose doing anything he wants to do. No restrictions. And, um, and we see those as he comes into his time with um, Delilah. God had clearly given his commands and clarity about marriage and fornication. The law had been clear to God's people up prior to this point that marriage was only that sex was only intended to be within the bounds of, of marriage. And that he was not supposed to marry outside the Jewish faith, the Israelites. Now, it wasn't because it was interracial. It was because it was interfaith. That God said, only those who are worshipers of me. And God had told him, he, he, has, he is boldly crossing all those lines and does not with to be with, withheld from anything. That was the story in the garden. If you know anything about Adam and Eve, remember that. Satan tempted her and made it sound like God was withholding something from her. That he must be holding you back. He's, he's, he, he doesn't want you to know some things. Did he really say that? He's withholding from you to tell you something this good. His, did he really say those things? He wanted to make it feel like they were held back. And so he, to just say this story as an adult, it's an odd story. When I was reading it, if you've ever read it, you're going, wow, that's weird. How many times were they in the bedroom, whatever? This is just a perverted, erotic situation with a woman. That's what this is. And I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't hide any of that. And the way we find ourselves in perverted places and things and screens and looking at it apart is because we begin to believe that God's restrictions or his laws or his commands are against us and they withhold us from things that are good. And it seems right. but the end of it leads to death. Let me just pause there and say, when it seems right, it's sort of, I mean, up to this point, Samson's really had no consequences for any of his actions, very little. It seems like he seemed to keep prospering and going well for him. And that's sort of the nature of the way sin goes, because usually sin, things that we involve our lives in, and here particularly outside their bounds of God's design for marriage, it feels right. It's enjoyable. It's actually something good that God intended to enjoy that we warp. And there is something, though, they, the Bible says, you know, you've heard it say sin is fun for a season. It has something because it's usually something good that God made. But it's like a fire and a hearth. Like God made fire and it's powerful. And when it's inside a hearth or a fireplace with the boundaries and the, then you can cook and use it. It's a very powerful entity. But fire outside the walls of God's hearth, if you will, in life, will destroy. And so is sex, and so is intimacy like this with women. It is destroying him, and I hope you see that it destroys him. And so, don't, although the application here is only 
only around um, this intimate relationship with Delilah, don't lose sight of the principle for us that God's re- God is not, when he gives us his commands and his precepts, to do anything with money, marriage, your life, work, whatever he gives you, he is not withholding. It is to bless you. It is to protect you. Outside of that, it will destroy you. So a couple other things he did in verse 4. Notice that it said that he loved a woman. He loved her. Now, he almost got married to a different girl. We don't know her name. And she betrayed him. And then he goes to a prostitute before this. And now he finds another girl, Delilah. He says, I just love her. He doesn't marry her, but he's just got a lot of emotions. And here's the other thing that seems right. If it feels right, therefore it must be right. That's what sin does. If I feel like I love them, I have great emotion, then it must be right. How often does that happen in our lives just because it feels right? I mean, love is a good thing, right? And I feel love, so therefore, and it just doesn't work. It destroys, um, it destroys him. Jeremiah 2 tells us that the heart is deceitful beyond our cure who can trust it. Did you know the Bible actually tells for believers not to be married to unbelievers? So a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. All right, so it says that. Um, and not to be unequally yoked. The Bible teaches that. It's interesting when you help people with that. Sometimes they will say, uh, well, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I want to marry a non-Christian. I've been praying about it, and I need to try to seek the Lord. What do you think? And so the, the answer to that is like, there's nothing to pray about. There's nothing to process. The Bible's really clear. Now, there's some things the Bible are, is not so clear on. You have to sort of work through in the body of Christ and do that. But this was one of those. And what, here's what I'm trying to get to, is that when the emotions are involved and the heart's involved, you just will do anything. That they sort of make us not see well and feel well. And it's true. And I don't care how mature you are or how what. If your emotions get involved and your heart get involved, involved it is really hard to listen and talk to God because we begin to believe that our emotions should dictate everything we do. And we live in a culture that says that. So he loved her. And many people, many times people do that. Do whatever you feel, and it ruins things. Um, and, uh, and we think only primarily about ourselves. What a selfish way to process in that. Now, in this relationship, they were, uh, they were both, it was bad. Delilah's not innocent in this. I mean, he's clearly been using women up to this point, but she's using him too. It's contractual. Man, I'm going to make money. Greed, I'm going to use him. And, I, man, if you were studying it this week, it's like she uses these, and she comes with a haymaker at the end. She's like, all right, he's not giving me up a secret. So I'm going to have to say, hey, you tell me you love me, big boy. How can you love me? And she goes to love things. She, it seemed like she had a little grace. I don't know if that's true. And tried her other tricks to get his information. But then she went after his heart, which shows men that we think we're big and tough and we want all these things outwardly and externally. But really, down deep, we're all emotional beings and we long to be loved and known and we're vulnerable. And in that moment, he wasn't. Whoop, she got him. And it was a contractual thing working and thinking only for yourself. What sin does to us in our hearts is it shrinks our world down to our cravings and what we think and what we feel and what we do. And it's the most miserable way to live life is to live only for your cravings and only for yourself. And that's what they're both doing. And they're destroying each other. 
Listen, yesterday I went to a football game, which, by the way, I, had to bring, I didn't mean to bring that up. But I went to one yesterday, right? And this is what I was starting. It was so cold yesterday morning at the U.K. football game. I took my family and my dad. And listen, it was so cold that we could not think for each other. We got out of the car. I wanted to tailgate. I've never tailgated in the morning. But it felt cold. I was thinking about self. And my heart, all I want to do is get warm. And nobody could get the stuff out and put the chair. We just were arguing and moaning and each other and couldn't. Why? Because our emotions and our thoughts were what were preceding everything we thought about and we couldn't get outside of ourselves. and they came in there it seems why and then the other thing that they uh, that you only think about self it's interesting when when satan's tempted eve in the in the garden he, he didn't, she didn't think about asking god or adam who was there and adam was there and he didn't think about speaking up they only processed what was going on from the serpent in light of themselves and then lastly the other thing that maybe was going on, it seemed like there were no consequences for breaking God's commands. Did you see that? That he just seemed to boldly keep breaking God's commands, and it seemed like he didn't think there was any consequences to that. And that's sort of the way sin works and in our life. Have you ever thought about that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, he said they will surely die, but they don't die right there, right? It was a spiritual death. That sort of sin, you get to a place over a death by a thousand paper cuts. But sin always has consequences, and it always takes you to a place that leads to death. It seems right, but it takes you there, and you think there's no consequences. And up until this point, he didn't seem to really have them a whole lot. Uh, but he did, and it takes him there. The Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce her. And they're using each other, and they're uh, breaking, and they seem to be, not care what the consequences that happens to any of them. Um, so why would God use a story of this marriage sort of scene? It's not marriage. It's adultery here. But what, what um, or fornication, why would God use a story with, like this to be sort of the final straw in Samson's story? I think a couple of thoughts. One is that... Um, The marriage relationship is central to the story of the Bible. It's the first relationship mentioned. Now, it's broken, and it doesn't mean you can't be single. I can't. I have preached on that numerous of times. But what I want you to see is that this relationship is central to the, to the Genesis story. God made a man, man and woman and gave them. That was the first relationship created, the priority of it. And at some level, it seems that God is a, is a spiral. It has... It's broken everything, even the thing that is most central, the male-female relationship, that's central to the story of human beings is being broken down. And it has, um, in all this way, we've seen all the gods they've bowed to them to and all the different judges' selfishness in different ways, but in the end, God brings us to a marriage or a woman and a woman and shows how difficult it is. That's a, that's a commentary on, I think, just how far gone the people are. And it's the most damaging place. And listen, we're just a people, all of us are just a people that this, we're, we're not a, this has happened to at some level, in some form, what, that we've experienced the brokenness of this. In marriage and the male-female, that's just the story of us. As a matter of fact, we just 
christened this week, not christened, but had a ribbon cutting for Greenhouse 17 for help the children of divorce and domestic violence. We did that this week. You know, as a church, we've been doing that. Why is that? Because this is how far gone people can get, and it affects the marriage and the family, the central story of God's people and human beings. It's really sad. But it's also the very place that God meets them and the hair begins to grow and they're broken. So what's the irony of repentance? The irony here is just that, um, first of all, a couple of ironies. And you notice his eyes were gouged out. His, his downfall is that he would see a woman and he would take her. And he was taking from the Philistines everywhere. And so they got him. And the reason they take his eyes out, most think, is because his, he's taking everything he's looked at. So they gouge out his eyes. But ironically, as they gouge out his eyes, that very thing is the thing he needed the most. Because it turns him inwardly. And he begins to examine himself. It's him and God in this prison. And in order for anyone to really <laughs> come to repentance, it takes self-evaluation. And not just self-evaluation of your do's and don'ts. It takes self-evaluation of the things that are unseen. Your soul. And then next, the irony of repentance is this, is that strength is really found in weakness. The story of the strong guy, he becomes the most strong in the end when he finally became weak. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't save ourselves. When striving cease, we come to them, we realize I cannot be good enough for God. As a matter of fact, I am an enemy of God. As a matter of fact, Samson's a mirror of me. And I'm just like Samson more than I want to admit. And I spiral just like everyone else. And I have a story of brokenness just like this. I mean, it is, it is, that is our story. And that, that, that salvation is becoming weak. It's coming to the end of ourselves and realizing that man shall live off Nothing but bread alone. And who was the true bread? Jesus, the bread of life. The true bread that comes down from heaven. In verse 28, Samson, when he turned there, he began, if you could compare his prayer in verse 28, Oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may have binged with the Philistines of God. He, he seems to turn to God and realize, I need help from you. I can't do this without you. Now, it's not the most perfect prayer, which is another point. But he does seem to turn. And he turns to him and to talk to God. He's not demanding like he was in chapter 15. Hey, God, you owe me this. He's looking to him in a posture of your God and I'm not. Strengthen me just this once. And, he's sort of, and, and a good sign of it is he's willing to die. Like to ask and get this prayer request, he's not going to benefit much from it. Whereas before, he, needed, he, he wanted water from God in an earlier story, and he could keep doing what he wanted. That's the only reason he wanted it. But he's ending here, and it's that. And so that's irony, that the real way that you come to God is through weakness. It is, guys, did you pay attention that every time he was doing bad, God, the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, but when God took his Spirit away, then is when he comes to the Lord. God took away his presence. The greatest thing that can happen to you is when the worst thing that can happen to you is God take away and forget you and move away. And he, in the irony of it, when God moves away, he becomes broken. And he need, no, he needs him. 
Um, the other thing is just that God always uses, it's ironic, God uses imperfect people, even their prayers. So he wrestled this week looking at it. It looks like his prayer. He's like, get my, get my eyes back. But here's the point. I think the point is this. Uh, I, I was mindful of a quote from Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace, where he quoted a famous missionary, Adonai Judson, who said that even our tears of repentance are saturated with sin. <laughs> and so, mine and your prayers are never that without sin. <laughs> God's grace is just that much, and we need it that much, that even our tears at the most lowest point have some sort of sin in them. And you need God more than, he's the real hero more than you know. We're not the hero of Christianity. And so, even in the end, Samson's, <laughs> although God uses him, he's not. And, um, and the, probably the greatest irony here, if you knew, he had these Nazarite vows. And I didn't go into them this week, and neither one, I said I would, I lied. I thought I'd talk to him a lot more this week. But he, he, there were these three vows he was supposed to keep, keep. And it was, um, it was sometimes men were set aside, people would take Nazarite vows before God and sort of set themselves aside to, to sort of be close to God. And, they would, and one of his was not cut his hair and to not touch anything dead and to um, uh, not be drink, drink wine and be drunk in just a period of time. Well, God, he, he never actually commits to the vows. God just says, you're going to do this to him. But in the end, um, if you look back in Leviticus the vows, at the end, whenever you finished your season of a Nazarite season where you took some vows and took those vows, they were always, there was a beginning and end to it. At the end, you'd make these three sacrifices in the temple. Well, he doesn't get a chance to make those sacrifices. He actually is, his, is the sacrifice. So. Jesus said in John 12, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Samson seemed to finally lost his life, meaning he trusted. And God worked in him. So... Um, that leaves us with uh, the greatest, um, Samson just is riddled, not riddled, is covered with imagery about Jesus. I mean, it's just so much imagery, it's almost comical how much it reminds you. There's things that allude to Jesus Christ himself. That he was born to a barren woman, that an angel came and pronounced his birth. That he was sold for silver pieces, like Jesus was sold by Judas. That he was betrayed by someone who he was intimate with, that betrayed him. Jesus came to his own people and they betrayed him. Three times he was tempted. Did you see that? Did you notice that? That three times Delilah tried to and Jesus was tempted. Three times he was mocked. Was Jesus mocked? Yes, he was. He was ridiculed and made fun of. And there was Dagon and so was Samson. Um, it looks like the other gods are winning, which has looked like for those three days, it looked like Jesus was losing. But then also, Samson at the very end, in his weakest moment, and I, it has to be that. It says he put one hand on one pillar and one on the other, and he bowed them out. What's that look like? A cross. The imagery of Jesus is there. And it seems like what God is doing as we read this book, 
that in the darkest moments of marriage and male and female and, and sexual erotica and the perverseness of this and, and terrible leaders and, and, gov- and, and people being far gone and the culture, whatever it may be, in that moment, the point is to see that God himself is working. He's faithful despite wherever people are. And that's our hope today. You want to know why we pick judges? That's why. Because it feels like we're living in the Canaanites in this time. Does it not feel like that to you? And yet, we're not any more or less secure than we were before, than we are now. Because why? Because there is a God, the true and better Jesus, who, is, who has come, and God is orchestrating his story. And he rules over Samson, and he rules over Samson's sin, and he rules over everything. He has the final word, and he's better than Samson. He's not selfish. He was selfless. And he came to only do the will of his father, and to seek and save that which was lost. He did not go around taking and exploiting everybody for his own good. Jesus himself came to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for you and me. He's the better Samson. He's nothing like Samson in that. He was pure and undefiled. He was, he'd never touched anything he shouldn't have, not even a thought. He was perfect. Why? Because the law required perfection and only God himself could be perfect and obey it as the God man. He did that. He kept his vows perfectly. He couldn't keep his, but he did. He kept the law perfectly. He kept his vows. Jesus did. It wasn't the plan of the Philistines, uh, but the plan of the Satan and the evil one who he conquered and killed. And he, he conquered that with his death. And his life was perfect so that you and I would never be conquered again. And that so no matter how far we spiral, he is faithful to keep us. He's the hero. It's not Samson. And I hope that you hear that. The vows, the hair, was God. The vows, I've, I've wondered this the whole time. I don't know if it's true. But Samson never keeps, it says, his vow. And if you go back to Genesis 12, when God makes the Abrahamic covenant, and you remember that story, and he tells Abraham, he tears an animal, and God says, if, 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 if I don't keep my covenant, may what happens to this animal happen to me. And God passes between the animal, but he doesn't let Abraham pass through. Because what he's saying is that even, Abraham, if you don't keep it, may death come to me. Seems like a parallel. He couldn't keep the vow. He, didn't, he couldn't do it. God said, well, even whatever happens, I will die for Samson's sins too. I'm the vow keeper. I'm the gracious one. I am the better Samson. So our application is to believe that a God who would do that, when he tells you that sin will lead to death, believe him. And believing that repentance leads to life. Let's pray. God, as we sing in response this morning, would you, um, would you help us to begin to believe more and more that you're the good and better Samson for our lives. And that we're more like Samson than we want to believe. And we find ourselves maybe at times in a culture that we think is so far gone. And yet that's not where our hope is built. Whether cultures are good or bad or don't like you or how far what they think about anything. Our hope is built upon your faithfulness to the covenant and your kindness. So, Lord, help us in this. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.